everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Where can you get the best medical information anytime, anywhere? I hope right here on the smartest doctor in the room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. This podcast strives to bring you the latest medical news right to your favorite listening device or video channels. There is a disclaimer. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended as personal medical advice. For, the, for that, please seek out your trusted healthcare professional. Today's podcast is on why are food allergies so common? And a lot of you know that I'm, uh, who've been following the podcast, I'm board certified allergist immunologist. So this has an especially important meaning to me, but I want to take you back a little bit. You know, when I was growing up in the seventies, yes, that was a long time ago. I hardly knew anyone of my friends or anyone in the school who had even a food allergy, even the dreaded peanut allergy. I, I really did not know anybody. I was involved in the tennis team, the basketball team. Fast forward to the early 2000s, and now as a parent, my son has several friends, you know, schoolmates who have these dangerous peanut and tree nut allergies. So I'm like, whoa, what's going on here? There has to be something different in the environment that's caused this dramatic increase in food allergies, but what was it? This is where the science of epidemiology comes in. Epidemiology studies populations where diseases seem to cluster abnormally and they try to figure out the source. This typically involves infectious diseases or cancers. And I'll never forget actually in residency, I had to do a presentation on Lyme disease. So I got to do a lot of research on that. And that is one of the quintessential examples of how epidemiology leads to a discovery of an illness. Because back in the 1980s, what really happened in Connecticut was really interesting. There were a whole bunch of mothers that were complaining to the um, Department of Health there, saying that there was a whole bunch of children that were getting diagnosed with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis in a clustered area of Connecticut, which later became better known as Lyme, Connecticut. And it was very interesting because the doctor that got originally sent out to, to do the investigation was Dr. Alan Steer, who had some very specialized training. He was at Yale at the time doing a rheumatology fellowship. He wasn't even finished yet, but he also had done uh, training at the CDC in epidemiology. So they sent him out there to kind of investigate. And he's really one of the, the, the obviously discoverers of that it was a tick born illness that was causing these cases of what they thought was juvenile uh, rheumatoid arthritis. One other thing too, I just want to mention before we do our intro to our great guest is uh, another ex really interesting example of epidemiology was revealed in Dan Bootner's book, The Blue Zones, where he went around the world and found populations where people lived to 100 and, and quite healthy, which was very impressive. So my point in, in mentioning all this is that epidemiology can teach us a lot. And my guest today, Dr. Christopher Warren, is an epidemiologist at Northwestern whose research focus has been on the market increase in the prevalence of food allergies here in the United States. So along with all of you, I am hoping to have a better insight into the problem uh, by the end of this podcast. So it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Christopher Warren to the podcast. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Mitchell. Shall I call you Dean? You can um, call me Dean. Call me Chris. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, it's so funny. You talk about growing up and, and not knowing anyone with the food allergy. I can tell you, I, I you know, I grew up a little more recently, late '80s, early '90s, and I had one friend with a shellfish allergy who 
really unique because of his shellfish allergy. And I can tell you, I was just back home looking at pictures from a family photo album. And and my my fifth birthday theme was edible Play-Doh. And my mom made this edible Play-Doh out of cornstarch and peanut butter. And, you know, so there's pictures of us all just rubbing peanut butter all over ourselves, you know, making these towers. And no one was worried about... uh, peanut allergies at that point either you know and that was that was around 1990 so it's it's definitely appears to be the case that that things are on the rise um you know in in a lot of different ways but we'll get into it you know i i started my uh what was originally my allergy practice which has then sort of morphed into a functional medicine practice but i started seeing patients after training in 1991 mm-hmm. And one of my first patients, I'll never forget him because he was so cute and he was one of my first patients. So you never forget your first patients. He was three years old and he had very bad asthma and severe peanut allergy. It was the only one. And we'll talk about this whole issue with multiple food allergies later. But, you know, but what really struck me at the time, his mother was a terrific advocate for him. And fortunately, so many food allergy patients and children have great parents. But what really struck me and broke my heart at the time was I remember her telling me like, he was getting very a little bit lonely and depressed because he at school they were so afraid he used to have to eat lunch in the library by himself yeah. you know and uh, so it had a lot of you know social aspects to it um you know with what's going on these days i think it's the people who don't have any food allergies would be going to the library these days to eat their lunch right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway so i like to ask to start off the podcast you know why someone chose a particular career so I'm sure when you were growing up in high school, I don't, I don't know if you thought you were going to become an epidemiologist, but what, how did you fall into this? And also, I saw you did some specialized training later on at the Sean Parker um, mm-hmm. Center in, at Stanford, which is pretty, really impressive place. So how did yeah. you get into this and uh, what led you down this path? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I really, I I had no awareness of food allergies or really allergic disease at all as an area of, of interest. Besides, I had very bad asthma when I was younger um, and I have a lot of autoimmune disease in my family. But but thankfully, I've been been pretty much spared as an adult. Um, but I you know I, I like a lot of folks, uh, you know, going to college, trying to, you know, does well in science. I thought I wanted to be a, a doctor. I, I read a lot of books about, you know, V.S. Ramachandran, a lot of these uh, Oliver Sacks, the idea of being sort of mm. a medical detective of the more neurological variety. It was really attractive to me. Um, had a rude awakening as an undergrad at Northwestern, uh, realizing that, oh, yeah, there's like thousands of other people who want to do this. And, and they might be a little more, uh, you know, ha- have their wits about them a little better than, than me, who was excited to be in the big city, uh, taking advantage of all, all of that. Um, and that was also when I discovered, like, there's this whole other path for people who love science and who are curious about the world and want to pursue postgraduate education and not go into epic amounts of debt along the way called the PhD. And so uh, I, I got I got interested in, in, in kind of that path, um, more uh, kind of developmental neuroscience, trying to understand how the how the how the brain worked. One thing led to another, um, ended up actually working abroad for a few years, kind of on, along the more taking the nonprofit path in sort of educational nonprofits, um, trying to trying to understand, um, you know, how to bring resources to other other parts of the world where there there are, are fewer. I was in the Western Highlands of Guatemala. Long story short, ended up back in Chicago trying to uh, get my footing again in in research, having a strong interest in public health, strong interest in environmental health. Um, my resume made it across the desk of Ruchi Gupta, who's my current boss. 
And I was hired to do community outreach and engagement for what at the time was set to be the largest, most ambitious, um, prospective, like prenatally recruited birth cohort in the country. We were going to follow 100,000 uh, pregnant women and their children through age 18, assessing an incredible variety of environmental exposures with all these outcomes. It was a collaborative effort of CDC and, and FDA and NIHS and all these institutes. And I, you know, I, we had our little part of it at Northwestern. Six weeks in, the funding gets uh, gets canceled for the study. They decided let this is hurting all these cats, these academics uh, to get them all to agree on one course of action was not uh, not feasible for uh, the 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 leadership of the study at the time. And so I was faced with the decision. Uh, well, we no longer have a job for you in this lab. We really like you. Um, could we figure out some way to uh, keep you on here at Northwestern? And, and at the time, there were just a couple of us in this group. And so I was very interested in asthma and like school-based asthma um, promotion. And so I'm like, okay, let's write a grant. So we we got a grant. Uh, we were able to get some funding from the ALA to for me to lead a, a school-based asthma um, study in communities that were targeted from an epidemiologic study we did that appeared to be at extremely high, uh, have an extremely high burden of asthma and kind of be like asthma hotspots in Chicago. Right. Which, yes. Yeah. That was, general, that was obviously a big focus. Yeah. It definitely. In the, yeah. So, the so that through that, I ended up uh, kind of discovering epidemiology, discovering that food allergy was a condition that we had just done a survey showing that about 8% of us kids um, had a, ha, you know, had a, what we could reasonably deduce to be an IgE mediated food allergy based on their symptom report, which really kind of blew the door open, um, for a public health understanding, uh, that this is a condition that's not just limited to, um, you know, a few kids in these affluent schools where there are the resources to really get the accommodations for them, but no, this affects people of all walks of life. And it's so poorly understood you know as a as a condition at that time and so kind of realizing i was in at the ground floor on this really burgeoning um area of study what was I your phd my wagon to food allergy and and was, it, sorry, was your phd in epidemiology or was it in a specific uh... it was so it was in population health sciences i actually did my focus on uh, health behavior research you know so looking at like behavioral interventions uh, like prevention interventions Right, I know that. Yeah, you mentioned. Yeah, I saw that in in some of your uh, your title of what yeah. you're, the kind of work you're doing. You know, it's funny when I think of an epidemiologist. I'll say the three things I think of. So I, I don't know if you feel like you fit into this category, but I think of a detective. Yeah. I think of part archaeologist. And when I say that, because, you know, it's like field work, you know, I, mm -hmm. I tend to think, you know, because again, like, I originally got interested in medicine, reading uh, stories by Breton Roucher. He used to write for the New Yorker. He was he was just a really good writer, a science writer. And he used to write for the New Yorker and he published a couple of books called The Medical Detectives. But a lot of his work was based on um, basic epidemiology that originally started, I think it was in New York, and then they moved to Atlanta to, to form the CDC because some of his stuff went back 20, 30 years ago. But it was like, it was so interesting to me because like to the, the idea of like a doctor or a medical person or scientific person going in the field, you know, interviewing people. I mean, again, like how Alan Steer had to do with those, uh, you know, uh, Lyme patients. And yeah. then I also think of somebody who's got to be probably good at math, like a statistician, a mathematician, because you're analyzing a lot of data. So yeah. is that the typical day of an epidemiologist or? 
Yeah, I mean, I would say so. I mean, and that's exactly, honestly, what got me because full disclosure, I didn't even know what an epidemiology. I went through all of all of college not understanding what epidemiology was at all, um, mm. and it wasn't until kind of coming back to the field at in the medical school context where I realized, oh, there's this is a job, a well established. I could get trained in epidemiology and do this, you know, for a career. Um, but yeah, absolutely. And I really think that seed was planted in that 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 school-based asthma intervention where we, you know, we we characterized the burden of disease, we identified hotspots, but we kind of had our own theories about why they might be hotspots, but then we decided to actually engage the students with asthma around you know, like having them go about their days and we made a little app for them to to sort of document when they were having flares or exacerbations and through and also just asking them like what do you what do you avoid what do you what do you try to do to you know that that facilitates your asthma and and almost universally they pointed to this strip where there's an intermodal transit facility on the west side where semis would just idle waiting to get into this intermodal facility where they offloaded from the trains onto the semi trucks mm. you know because it's just cars cranking out diesel and and other like yeah. soot and wow. things like right by the school and so wow. bingo. You know, you don't you don't really you you could in theory identify that from you know the right sorts of data if you're if you're getting it in real time, but also you know you you go and ask twenty kids in the neighborhood and they'll get you pretty well uh, <laughs> situated. And so then we did a we did an intervention to try to uh, you know create a no idling zone around the school, and that that was sort of the first time I had kind of seen the seen that process through. Mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously at a very small scale, but it was really impactful. Okay. Um, All right, let's get into. Obviously, what and I'm sure a lot of the listeners really want to know, and as I said, I do yeah. about food allergy. And I'll just start out with this. You know, and I actually I, I wrote a book called Dr. D. Mitchell's Allergy and Asthma Solution, where because I I specialize in sublingual allergy immunotherapy. You know, desensitizing sure. patients to all these different allergies. At the time, it was really just for environmental allergies. Now I'm doing for foods as well because we're trying to give these kids extra protection so they don't have to worry about every time they go to a restaurant if yep. there's a peanut or tree nut in the you know in in any of the food that they'll have a dangerous reaction. But I mentioned I actually had a chapter in the book, you know, about the hygiene hypothesis, because mm -hmm. in the 1980s, that was sort of like the hot idea. Yeah. And just for our listeners, the essence of that was that researchers thought, um, and even the allergy community, that it appeared that allergies, you know, environmental, even food, seemed to be more prevalent in, in Western uh, societies, meaning, you know, more affluent societies, which was kind of strange because they think, well, aren't they, aren't they fortunate to have better health care and better food? And the bizarre thing was they, they felt that it, it was, again, the again, the term hygiene hypothesis that it was too clean, meaning that, you know, these were uh, populations that were they weren't exposed to a lot of various different microbes. Um, they were being vaccinated. Whether that somehow that played a role wasn't clear. Um, antibiotics, which I'll talk about, I, I think is a big one. Mm -hmm. um, and there was even actually a New England Journal article at the time, you know, promoting about quote eat dirt. You know, <laughs> meaning that you know it seemed that people who lived near farms were better off than kids that lived in. New York City or Chicago, like we were, we are. Yeah. So, give me a little bit of an update on that. Um, has that been dispelled? Is there better? Is it more nuanced now? 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, so, so I think the hygiene hypothesis was an awesome epidemiologic observation that, you know, you got to start somewhere when you're trying to understand an epidemic that is as seemingly intractable and ongoing like the allergy epidemic or the allergy, you know, epidemics, which my colleague Thomas Platts Mills would, would say, you know, that not they're not all caught. They're not all caused by the same thing. But in general, clearly, there is a massive increase in yeah. atopic disease. Um, so I think some of the, you know, one thing a lot of people point to with the hygiene hypothesis is, you know, well, if if really sanitation is what is underlying, you know, this and the the kind of reduced exposure to this full uh, array of, of microbes or bacteria, you know, that you would have otherwise gotten, you know, all that, this, those things started in the 20s and the 30s and, and were pretty well implemented, you know, by the 40s and 50s. But it really seems like this increase in allergy started kind of later in the like in, in the 60s and 70s and then has really ramped up you know uh it's seemingly over the past few decades so there's kind of that disconnect um it also doesn't really explain you know it, it could explain like the ige response but like this th2 skew but it doesn't really explain why you also you know it used to be that that we just our immune system just ignored everything that wasn't really like a direct you know threat to our bodies you know not just with uh an allergic response, or not just with like IgE, but other other antibodies, um, and I think now uh, we're seeing that that we are just reacting to our environments in a way, like immunologically, in a way that we never used to do. And I don't know that the hygiene hypothesis really explains. Yeah, you that know, fully. yeah. I, honestly, I I po- you know I remember when it came out, and I, I poked a lot of holes in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll tell you because. First of all, what just didn't make sense to me was we knew, first of all, like inner city asthma was a huge thing. So where is the the whole thing about eating dirt? You know, a lot of these kids, unfortunately, lived in very poor housing. Mm -hmm. We know that dust mites and cockroach and animal dander are all very strong allergens and increase the incidence of asthma. Right. So I didn't feel comfortable with that. Yeah. you know, I interviewed, I really had the pleasure of interviewing, uh, I don't know if it was about a year ago, Moises Velasquez-Manoff, who's a, actually a terrific journalist. You may be familiar oh, with him. He changed my life, honestly. He, Did he his, really? Uh, his book, I mean, not him yeah. personally, but his, that book was one of the few books that was on the bookshelf right when I started my working, you know, at Northwestern. Yeah, yeah. it's an amazing, yeah, yeah, the, honestly, it's better than any book I've ever read an allergist. Yeah, and so, <laughs> so as you know, that's interesting. So as you know, but Moise is actually, we discussed this on the podcast, and he had a very interesting chapter in the book where he was kind of dispelling the hygiene hypothesis for the most part. He yeah. liked to use the term missing old friends. Yeah. And what uh-huh. he was sort of describing, and I'll let you you know expand on this, was that, you know, it seems very interesting because one of the bigger uh, studies was like looking between East Germany and West Germany, you know, before the, you know, the wall came down. Yeah. And that ironically... The people in East Germany had lower incidences of asthma and autoimmune disease than in West Germany, which we, you know, was more affluent and had better health care. Um, and what he pointed to some research that showed that the, the folks living in East Germany had a more um, diverse microbiome, I, I guess, because maybe they were eating more uh unprocessed foods, you know, because again, they didn't have the, um, you know, they didn't have the ability to get, you know, these quote, higher quality foods that are probably processed a lot. So uh, what's your thoughts about, about that, about the whole missing old friends, you know, yeah. do you think that has a little more 
something to it. I do. I very much think. Yeah. So, so, and I think the way he puts it is it's not, it's not, um, you know, what's missing, it's what's there too. You know, it's not, it's not just like the complete sterile aspect right. of mm -hmm. our new, it's the, that particular things are missing that we always had as like when we evolved as organisms. I mean, from my understanding, we co-evolve with these commensal, you know, parasites essentially, or all these different microorganisms and, and macroorganisms. Um, and the and the particularly key role of you know things like helminth parasites just appear to I mean you can't underestimate uh, the effect that that our coevolution with helminths has had on on our allergic response because that's as far as I understand the only reason we really have IgE production is to deal with these things and the reason why we do that is because you know the, a huge swath of the of the human species up until like fifty years ago was colonized by these these hookworms and things and once they're in your body you can't really get rid of them all you can do is tamp them down right you, know? you have to coexist with it but i will tell you, i just want to put a warning to our listeners because moises yeah. mentioned this we talked he mentions in his book he actually went to mexico and got whatever access to these hookworms and yeah. as you know he uh put him on his well, he was skin stomping whatever. around outside a latrine right like, yeah he said it didn't work out too well so <laughs> um, we're hoping somehow down the line, we figure out this microbiome issue for both not yeah. only allergies, but autoimmunity. Um, yeah. Let me ask but, you this too, because I'll tell you a couple of things that I think, and, mm -hmm. and uh, it's not that I just think, I mean, there's been some research behind this. First of all, antibiotics, you know, that obviously in a lot of more affluent countries that, you know, and unfortunately sometimes in some not so affluent countries, it's become very, uh, easy access to. So there's a lot of resistance, but I think that I've seen that in my own patients, it really changes their microbiome. And yeah. I think there's been some good studies showing that if a child in the first year of life has several courses of antibiotics, this can really change their microbiome. Yeah. And the other big thing, especially regarding the food allergy, I, I don't know if Dr. Hugh Sampson and Mansana had mentioned this, but it, to me also too, there's so many more chemicals in the environment. And today, you know, children and babies, you know, the shampoos, the soaps that they use, a lot yeah. of these have, you know, tree nut or whatever products in them. And people don't realize the skin is a huge sensitizer. I mean, you, you, you may know that in studies when they want to make like an animal allergic, you know, to, to, you know, to do studies on it, what they do is they put something topical on its skin, like on a patch mm -hmm. and sensitize them. And then they feed them the oral and they yeah. become allergic. So I don't know, in, in your work that you've been doing, if you had to say maybe what are the one, two or three top reasons, do you do you have a working hypothesis on this? Yeah. Well, so it sort of depends on how how far you want to zoom out. I, I increasingly um, having I don't know if you, you're familiar with uh, he directs the Swiss Institute of Allergy, Chesme Adkiss. Um, I've editor. heard of him, but I, yeah, yeah, I guess I have heard. Mm -hmm. He's the editor in chief of allergy, you know, right. one of the top for journals in our field. Brilliant guy. He would truly yeah. be the smartest doctor in the certainly any room I've been in. Um, but uh, he uh, he's got this. I, he's called the, the epithelial barrier hypothesis, which basically posits that you know the big thing that's changed during the same time that the allergy epidemics and also autoimmunity epidemics have have you know run rampant has been our exposure to all these chemicals and different um, you know, environmental toxicants that have direct or indirect um, effects on epithelial barrier function. 
you know, so like some of the things you talked about, um, but also, you know, like, like PM, like particulate matter, diesel matter. I mean, that stuff settles on the skin and causes inflammation. We've got all these emulsifiers in our food that essentially, you know, he's done some very compelling work or like residual dishwashing. You know, I, I'm sorry, I, sorry, you just read my mind. I've been going a little crazy lately because I think I saw that study. It must have been the last month or two. Yeah. That Yes, the, the thing that you put, the, those little packets you put in your dishwasher. It makes your glasses real shiny. Yeah, they <laughs> disrupts your microbiome. I mean, yeah. it's crazy. You don't know, you know, we go back to taking a little soap and water and hand washing our dishes. I don't, I don't know what the answer is, right? Yeah. But but I but I really do think that has so much explanatory value, um, you know, because if you think about obviously the you know the fun stat is your skin's your biggest immune organ, you know, and normally you got these nice tight junctions between the cells, and they really keep everything out and and out including you know the tube of epithelial tissue you got running through you like into your gut and and out your butt, uh, you know it. it yeah. uh, but when those junctions are widened, that provides opportunities for all sorts of things to enter, you know, be it them allergens or just other bacteria or things translocating, causing inflammation, then starting this kind of perpetual loop where you get, you know, the barriers damaged, you got colonization of opportunistic pathogens like Saph aureus and things like that, you know, then the, then the things translocate to subepithelial areas, then there's an immune response, it brings inflammation, yeah, yeah. you lose the good stuff more inflammation, and now you can't heal the skin barrier. So it's just kind of, especially with constant exposure, it, mm -hmm. it's like an infinite loop uh, that causes a skewed TH2 response. And, and he posits really is a main driver of all this allergy and autoimmunity. Um, and it's chemicals even, that we're all exposed to, yeah. like pretty plausibly. Interesting. Do you, do you have, have you found any information? Because again, I, I think you probably would agree too. Uh, it, it, what's also kind of frightening is not even just the food allergies, but it, it's the multiple food allergies. I mean, again, some of the kids that I'm treating with sublingual drops, they yeah. have like four major food allergies, you know, to major groups, you know, eggs, wheat, mm -hmm. you know, um, soy, and it becomes extremely hard. Their diet is very limited. Is there any information why? Because I'm not aware of that, why even this this whole thing is being with multiple foods. Have you guys come up with any? Um... Yeah, I mean, I I guess um, certainly we've done a lot of epidemiology to show that you know yeah we should start talking about food allergies as opposed to food allergy because I think a lot of people if they're not affected directly or know people which is very small no a dwindling number of people you know. It's very rare to know just someone with a peanut allergy. And yeah. all of our therapies, most of the therapies we're advancing right now are like monotherapies that are targeted to specific, mm -hmm. um, you know, foods. I, do you do multi-food slip? I do. I do because, you know, um, I think it really improves their quality of life, which is so great about the sublingual drops. It's it's different, just so the listeners know, different than oral immunotherapy, which has more well known, but I don't agree with a lot of the things. And it's a, definitely more intensive and time consuming because they tend to do like one allergen over a period of several months before they add another one in. And I can do multiple food allergies at around the same time. So, um, you know, if I can ask you too, we we're talking about peanut allergy, you know, obviously the big news in allergy, which turned everybody on their head was the LEAP study mm -hmm. by Dr. Gideon Lack. But that was again, this is interesting. I don't know, you probably know this story, but I want the listeners to know that uh, it was such an interesting story, again, how he ended up getting involved. Now, Gideon Lack is a very well-known pediatric allergist in the UK. But from the story that I read was 
he was giving a lecture in Israel and uh, he was among the pediatricians and he said, you know, and again, how many of your patients have, you know, uh, peanut allergy? And very few of the pediatricians raised their hands. They were like, looked like a little strange, like this is not a problem here. So Lack came back to the UK and he must have been discussing with some of his other colleagues and said, you know, this is kind of strange. And he goes, in the UK, we have definitely a problem with burdening um, peanut allergy. They have the same thing in the United States, like in New York. These are areas that have Jewish populations, just like Israel. Yeah. So why is Israel so special? Except maybe, you know, it's the, uh, you know, the biblical country and, you know, maybe they have special blessings. I don't know. But uh, um, no, but lack to randomize in a trial. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> right, divine intervention. So but but seriously, Glack did the work, which became super well known, where he said, you know, in Israel, in like the first four or five months, these kids get a, a treat called bamba that contains sesame seed and like peanut. Could it be possible that introducing these type of foods early on will prevent them from you know, developing you know, the food allergy later on if you get it in time before obviously it's full blown? And his work has been so far pretty well substantiated. And now, you know, the basic recommendations are, you know, for kids that have eczema, um, that have any evidence of even environmental allergy and maybe even a mild food allergy to start obviously under supervision with their doctor uh, to introduce these foods early on. Mm -hmm. So uh, maybe you could just give us an update on is lax work still going strong? Is there any twists or turns? Yeah, I mean, so so I think one, so I think that's also a great example of epidemiology really informing clinical medicine, really informing right. prevention, because because the, the missing link was then they did a survey of Israeli Jews and, you know, London dwelling Jews. And yeah, they found out that pretty much every aspect of the important covariates is the same, except for that these Israeli kids are getting loads of bomba, you know, starting at four months and they keep it in their diet, too. Um, they they love it as, like throughout childhood, um, you know, so so I would say. Certainly, there there have been a fair, you know, a growing number of studies that have looked at the impact of this early, deliberate allergen introduction. Uh, primarily, of uh, you know, there was another follow-on study done by the same group um, in the UK where they said, okay, this works for peanut in high-risk kids because that was the other thing is all the kids, you know, were were high risk because they had they had atopic dermatitis or were sensitized. Um, and then they said, well, let's try this for a bunch more allergens, you know, so like egg, cow's milk. Um, yeah, why shouldn't, it, bite? Why, it should why shouldn't bite? it work, you know? Um, and so that paper was also published in the New England Journal. Unfortunately, their intent to treat like the primary analysis they did failed to show an effect. Um, but they're, and they attribute that to the fact that they had very low adherence to the intervention. You know, you're telling all, and they dealt with a, uh, a more general risk group. So it wasn't just the high risk kids. It, it was kind of all comers um, who were breastfeeding at the time. And they were saying, okay, we'll go ahead and, and introduce this much fin fish and this much milk and this much egg and this much, you know, peanut. Yeah. And of the people who did it, it, it did appear to be protective, but only a small, uh, you know, proportion of the uh, participants were adherent. So, you know, there have been other studies, you know, out of, um, you know, out of out of Japan that have shown like early introduction of cow's milk, early introduction of egg um, is protective. 
we actually, um, you know, in in consultation with Gideon and and his and George Dutois, who's kind of the was the, the PI of the the Eat study, which is that second one. We're in the middle of a huge RCT in Chicago, uh, where where we are actually exploring the effectiveness of introducing you know eight common food allergens, you know, starting around uh, you know four, three or four months of age. Uh, through the first year of life, looking at protective effects, we're a little bit enriching for high risk, um, but also including a, a most of our samples, just, you know, normal kids who are, uh, you know, being seen in primary care in the Chicagoland area. But importantly, we are going really out of our way to make sure that the families who are randomized into the intervention are adherent, you know, so we're giving, we're actually sending food directly to their door in the format that they desire. Every week, they're talking to coaches who are helping them introduce the foods, you know, helping them with recipes. Um, and so far we're 500 participants into an 1800 uh, mm. you know, participant study. And, and we've got very high adherence. We of course don't know anything about the outcomes, but um, so far so good. And so we're really hoping that, that through this, we can also just, you know, really just change the way that um, kids are fed in this country because right now, unfortunately, because the, the eat study failed at showing efficacy with its primary outcome, a lot of decision makers still view that as kind of like not good evidence for the effectiveness of early introduction and are only willing to go as far as the RCT that was done by, you know, Dr. Lack's group goes, which is, yeah, prioritize early introduction for these high risk kids. But we know most of the kids with food allergies don't have just a peanut allergy. And so we got to go broader with our prevention. Um, yeah, you know, there's a company, I forgot the name of it out in California, they were on Shark Tank, where they actually came up with a powder yeah. that could be added, you know, which uh, it contained, I think they had they had milk, uh, egg, yeah, meat, maybe. And, you know, again, if something was made simple, you know, or it would really be amazing if there was like a special product, let's say like, you know, parents could buy a yogurt or something mm -hmm. that had in it, you know, in small quantities, because again, the, the, the whole idea too is maybe not to overwhelm the immune system, but to slowly, gradually uh, do it, that it would be really super helpful uh, because this is just such a big problem. I mean, right. and it becomes a lifelong problem. Uh, totally. Well, and so based off of that, I mean, I, I think it, we have, and we have such a fine line to walk, you know, because on one hand, we, we acknowledge that this is a huge public health issue. On the other hand, when we're talking about feeding your baby, you know, we have, we have successfully, you know, and I have a six month old, so this is very real um, uh, to me. And so, you know, this, we don't want to over medicalize something as simple as just giving your baby what you're eating, as long as it's developmentally right. appropriate. Right. And right. some of the guidelines around this, you know, are, are absurd and actually counterproductive. You know, like right now, the AAP recommends that you wait three to five days between introducing any new food to your baby, which makes zero sense from any for any reason. It's, all yeah. it does is delay the amount of time it's going to take you to introduce your kid to kind of the full array of foods that are going to comprise their diet moving forward. You know, and if the, and I think it's nominally done under the guise of like, well, if they have a reaction, then you'll know what it's to, but you could figure it out if they have a reaction and you fed them three things, you know, like you, that's, that's just sort of uh, part of the deal. You know, you so. mentioned too, it's important, you know, the pediatricians really are the front line of this. I mean, they're seeing the kids, you know, weeks when they're, you know, a few weeks old, whatever. And, you know, the allergists like my, you know, with my background, you know, you don't see it till there's a problem. Right. What would you probably, if you were giving a talk to a group of pediatricians, 
you know, the, the evidence that you would show them and, you know, and in guidance, let's say with a, a medical doctor or whatever, it's an allergist working with you, you know, how would you say, look, this is, I mean, look, nobody ever has the crystal ball and nobody's ever hundred percent, but this is what I would do for my kid. And this is what I'm recommending you do for your patients. You don't have like big signs or whatever, because, you know, obviously a lot of times, you know, parents have multiple children and, right. you know, it, it gets to be a little confusing They'll say, well, why is my, I did this for my oldest. He was fine, but my, my youngest has, you know, these three different food allergies. Sure. Well, I, I will say it, it, while the current guy, the current NIAID, the NIAID National uh, Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease sponsored guidelines really do prioritize children with early onset, more severe atopic dermatitis for for more aggressive introduction. And I think that we need we do need to prioritize that population because clearly, you know, and getting back to the kind of epithelial barrier situation, we know those kids with early aggressive eczema are at much greater risk of mm. uh, of developing food allergies, like peanut in particular. Right. Um, so, but but I do think right now the way the guidelines are written is, you know, they encourage that you then skin test that kid before they are introduced, which introduces and and we also know increasingly that the window of opportunity for prevention, you know it starts to close, you know, as the kid enters that sort of second half of their first year. And so, you know, while it's well-intentioned to make sure, okay, we've got a priority population. The last thing we want to do is like, you know, cause anaphylaxis because we're being too aggressive with our prevention. But at the same time, how many additional cases of, of peanut allergy are we essentially causing um, because of the delays in getting the skin testing or the, you know, unwillingness right. of parents yeah. or, or yeah. just the well, that, you know, that's, Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Uh, again, and, and again, even with my allergy background, I typically, when I teach pediatricians, when I give lectures to them, I'm telling them to do the immunocap. It's a simple blood test. It's extremely yeah. accurate. You can actually get the protein components of a peanut allergen, which is even more accurate than a skin yeah. test. So they, I think they can do. It. I think they just don't know, and they're worried. What happens when I get abnormal? It's just education. Right. Exactly. But you know, the other thing you just reminded me too, which I think is so important. You know, the gut microbiome is super important, and and obviously what's going in there, which you know we know affects food allergies. But like as you were saying too, when you're talking about like the kids with eczema or what we call atopic dermatitis, their skin barrier is compromised. I think parents don't even think about it. They got to be super careful of the topical products that they're using on their kids, the shampoos, the soaps, make sure it doesn't have tree nuts or something else in it. You'll quote the most natural, uh, when you go to a health food store, the most natural shampoos and soaps are all with plant-based products. So I'm not sure what the answer is. I mean, probably oils are the best, you know, like olive oils and stuff like that too, which tend to be. Well, so actually I got news for you. Unfortunately, olive oil is actually quite bad as as an emollient um, because it actually functions as a detergent. Yeah. My colleague, Helen um, Bruff, who was actually one of the investigators on the EAT study um, is, is she just, I just watched her give two talks about, about this. And uh, while you, same thing, you think it's all natural. Oh, we're doing the least harm. Actually, the way that it interacts with the with the the skin is is actually quite um, bad for you know the things that. So, it's what would they recommend for a, a child with eczema? You know, uh, to to bathe. You know, and probably not to do it too often. Honestly, that you know that would be you know there. <laughs> but um, what would ceramide you, based? I mean, if you can afford them, the ceramide based. Uh, Emollients appear to be the. the I'm best. sorry, did you say that again? The ceramide, the c- ceramide stuff with with C E R A M I 
de like yes surmise right yeah what, what's in that what what is that boy um this is where i'm not going to provide very good answers yeah okay we'll, we'll check into it I'll, I'll i'll take a look at it so if people have questions they could email me yeah um okay because that's good to know i mean you know again you know for the longest time too a topic dermatitis was a black box of you know of <laughs> not much productive care. I mean, they used to give kids oatmeal baths and right. wrap their skin, you know, in, you know, in wax and steroid creams and, and all yeah. that stuff. Leech and, baths. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, and we know it's a harbinger of, you know, allergies come. You know, one of the things too, when I was looking on your site, I think it was one of the papers published by your group <laughs> was the distinct uh, racial differences in food allergies. Could you maybe explain that? Cause I've seen food allergies in African-American children, or Caucasian children, Asian children, you know, I, and I used to always tease a group when I would um, give a lecture. This is what I had heard that, you know, when I say, well, what's the most common, you know, food allergy in the United States? And, you know, again, um, among the children, peanut is very high. Among adults, it's shellfish. And then if you go to Asia, from what I've heard, one of the highest food allergies is rice, which mm -hmm. I guess makes sense. It's probably what they eat a lot. So, yeah. Um, but anyway, what, what have you found? Uh, you know, anything distinct in, you know, from between different, um, racial yeah, I mean, so, so as, as you know, being an allergist, you know, food allergy is a tricky thing to diagnose. It's especially a tricky thing to diagnose when you don't have the luxury of all the tools you have in your office of, you know, you got blood testing, you got skin testing, you got the ability to do a very comprehensive history. You got the ability to feed them the food and see what, what happens at different doses. Um, you know, given there's just such a dearth of allergists in the country, you know, period relative to the to the need to the population. That, yeah. You know, that it, that, it, that to your point about trying to empower primary care and other folks to do some of the testing, I think, is really well, you know, that that's important uh, because there's just not enough allergists to do the testing. But of course, from an epidemiologic perspective, that leaves you you know, in, in, in a bit of a, you know, it's a bit of a conundrum, you know, if you, if you just count the people who have ICD codes of food allergy, assuming that those are like, you know, properly diagnosed and that reflects the true disease status, you know, you're going to systematically underestimate people who are, are living with very real, but undiagnosed, you know, IgE mediated food allergies, you know, at the same time, if you take people's word for it and just ask them if they're allergic to anything, you know, they're going to wildly over report uh, because, you know, people think they're allergic to everything because food's ubiquitous and there's all sorts of symptoms that people experience. After uh, yeah, I think I think we need a good algorithm. And uh, it's funny, I think in some places like Australia, they're starting to do this, that basically, you know, the pediatricians get a good questionnaire. I mean, with, you know, and obviously if they see the kids have eczema, obviously any evidence, signs of an early food allergy or asthma, and then you know, do the IgE testing, which can be done through the blood, you know, screen that. And and then obviously in the algorithm, if any of these are positive, get a quick referral mm -hmm. to a specialist um, to make some really important decisions. Like you're saying, you know, that that window, that four to six months is a key window. Yeah. Um, but I'm sorry, but going back to my question, is there any major racial differences? Yeah. Like, you know, African-Americans more than... Right. Caucasians or Asians or no? Mm -hmm. Yes. So, so what our data, the data, there've been a number of these big population-based surveys, you know, things that some of them are done by like the CDC and some of the CDC ones do include some serologic testing, you know, just to look for, for, you know, specific IgE to foods and, and things like that. Um, 
for the last 20 years, basically, since we've been looking, we have seen pretty reliable racial differences, you know, with respect that, that mirror what we see in a allergic asthma, you know, where especially urban dwelling, non-Hispanic black populations are disproportionately impacted by, by food allergy. Um, you know, that's attenuated somewhat if you do the kind of more claims-based analysis, you know, that, or like if you look at Medicaid, you know, where sometimes there's there's a long delay or lack of follow-up in terms of getting that patient in front of an allergist who can make a definitive diagnosis. But if we kind of do our, take our best guess as to who has a food allergy um, based off of these very comprehensive kind of survey report, it does appear to be um, the, the disparities appear to be real and they do follow, you know, you see the same thing in atopic dermatitis, you see the same thing in allergic rhinitis, like why wouldn't you see it in food allergies? But I think when I came into the field, because of the nature of the sort of advocacy organizations who were doing the bulk of the kind of PR, I think the general, and I think this is still residual in the public for some way. I think a lot of people just think of food allergy as kind of a, a disease that affects, you know, rich white kids who don't have anything else to worry about. Uh, you know, I think that those when I talk to people, there's still a little bit of that left. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think that's really damaging for the field because it's something that really does affect everyone. Um, and obviously the specific things you're allergic to are going to be somewhat uh, impacted by your environmental exposures. Um, and one of the things we see really clearly is a disproportionate impact to shellfish allergy on, you know, African-American kids. Yeah. And one of the, no, no, yeah, that's very interesting. You know, but well, you know, it's interesting. Shellfish cross reacts also with cockroach and dust mm -hmm. mites, and um, you know that's also a problem sometimes in inner city dwellings yeah. and their housing. So I, that that I find to be very interesting. I have to make one of the very interesting, weird observation. Please, <laughs> that uh, in taking care of um, children with food allergies and going to sometimes some special meetings, like for parents, you know. I don't know if it's just my unique view on this, but it seems to me like the kids that have these food allergies are lucky to have been born into a family where the mom is the smartest mom in the room. These yeah. food allergy moms, kudos to them. They are phenomenal. I Again, again, I don't know if I'm seeing a skewed view because by the time they come to see me, but I've been to meetings where I see them and of all racial backgrounds and you know financial situations, they are just so on top of this. Yeah. So uh, it's so impressive. I, I just had to do a little shout out on that. So, uh, Dr. Warren, the last question I want to ask you, because we like to have hope. What can we hope for in the future, you know, that food allergies will diminish? What do you like? Again, your 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 mm -hmm. uh, research areas contribution. What what are we hoping for? Are we hoping for the silver bullet? Are we hoping just some well, no, I mean, I, I think so. So one, you know, again, I've only been in this field for a little over a decade, a lot of which included my doctoral and postdoctoral training. And we went from a point where when we when we said, oh, two kids in every classroom probably have a food allergy, that 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 was like among the affected people. That was not surprising. But among the general population, I think that was very eye opening, you know, that that this this is really affecting a lot of kids. And, and certainly tons of evidence has come in to corroborate that. Yes, this really does affect a lot of people. But at that time, there was no there were no treatments and there certainly wasn't uh, any sort of really very promising avenue for prevent like primary prevention. And in the past 10 years, we've seen you know, FDA approved treatments, lots of treatments on the horizon, you know, for different aspects of the disease. Yeah. Um, 
and also prevention that that seems to work. And we're also now that now that you know NIAID went from funding you know just a tiny little sliver of their budget for food allergy to a, a much more substantial um, you know amount amount of funding. You know we have they've laid the groundwork for a lot of really solid science that is going to build you know that 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 is bearing fruit now and will only continue to bear fruit you know further fruit like the sunbeam study is this huge birth cohort that's looking at you know the, all these environmental influences on like childhood atopic disease development and so I think you know to the extent that we're that like Dr. Adkis's work showing this all these different things in our environment that are impacting our epithelial function. If we are basically poisoning our children with our environment and common additives that really don't need to be there, but they're just there because they were added to serve some industrial purpose that is helpful. You know, maybe it makes things shinier or slipperier or, you know, more evenly distributed in your ice cream. Like we could very, if we show that those are associated with um, some of these inflammatory processes, they could be removed and we can yeah. stop, you know, stop all these exposures. You know, I, I'm not going to be so delusional to say we all got to go back and, you know, hunt and gather and go back to our or or at least go back to what we were doing in the 20s before we had to worry about any of this stuff. Um, but but I think also the role of the microbiome is just beginning to really be understood. And and that's really the the I think that's right, going to be the, key. Of the rubber hits the road. I agree with you. You know, what I tell patients now, too, is we, we close out. I said, I you know, fortunately, I have not written a lot of antibiotics over the last decade or so. I'm so glad because most of my patients we can treat without using it. I said, but one day I can't imagine a patient going into their doctor's office instead of getting a prescription for an antibiotic, getting a prescription for a specific probiotic. Right. Say, this is what you need to get your gut better or your lungs better, whether it's inhaled or swallowed. So yeah, I, I do. I think there's a lot of really exciting things coming down the pipe. Yeah, because Dr. Today, Warren, Christopher Warren, I want to thank yeah. you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. I've learned a lot, so I'm not disappointed. I'm sure the listeners are too. Right. And please continue the terrific work that you're doing. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. All right. Thanks, Christopher. Thanks, Christopher.